1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
2: Thank you, Scott. And yes, it does. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly today. And here's what is ahead. Omicron concerns, not on Wall Street. Investors shrugging off a spike in cases with the S&P 500 sitting at another record today. Holiday retail sales surging. We're going to dig into that and some of the names you may want to buy. But not everybody is so cavalier. Demand for at-home COVID tests still soaring. They are hard to find. And the question is, do they even work well against Omicron? Dr. Michael Mina is here in an interview you have to see. And 2021's top tech, Whole Foods delivery disaster, and more rough seas ahead for the cruise lines. All that and more is coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire. We begin with the markets and more record highs. Let's get down to Christina Portsanavilos with the numbers and the trade. Christina Hello.
1: What Monday blues, right? The S&P is pushing deeper into record territory, and it's already recorded its 68th record close of 2021. The board continues to be green following last week's rally after a shortened trading week, but it looks like we're keeping on with that historical trend. I'm not going to use the cliche right now, pushing towards that end-of-year rally, which is typically over the last five trading days of the session, of December, I should say, and the first two trading days of January. And since 1928, the S&P 500 has been in positive 78.5% of the time. With many on holidays right now, hopefully watching CNBC, liquidity is relatively low, but you got a lot of sectors moving higher. Information technology, followed by energy and materials are leading the pact right now, all above 1%. More specifically, the semiconductor ETF. I want to focus on semiconductors right now. With SOXX hitting an all-time high since its inception back in 2001. You've got applied materials up 3%, Teradyne up over almost 3%, Broadcom over 1%, uh, and the list continues. Oil, though, and these are all all, all all-time highs, by the way. Oil up today on hopes that Omicron will have a limited impact on global demand heading into next year, even, unfortunately, if you're one of those people dealing with the 1,300 canceled flights across the board. On the energy front, APA, Devon Energy, Diamondback Energy, and Marathon Oil are all seeing swings well above 2 percent. Look at uh, Devon up almost 5, APA Corp up almost 6 percent. And last but not least, Because it's the holidays, because they're doing so much shopping online, I want us to look at cybersecurity. And cybersecurity is outperforming today. Fortinet, uh, Accenture among the large-cap constituents of the – we're going to bring up the ETF, the uh, CIBR ETF, hitting all-time highs. And then Cisco trading at its highest level since September 2000. Brian, back over to you.
2: You know, a lot of people that miss those flights, you know what they're going to do, Christina? They are going to rent a car, and they are going to drive to grandma's house or back home. So fuel demand may actually stay high. Christina, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, certainly, as Christina's told you, there is no humbug on Wall Street today. Stocks are getting bought. All the major averages are higher. But the end of the year, of course, is a time for reflection and planning. So where should you plan to invest next year? Joining us now is Simeon Hyman, Global Investment Strategist at ProShares Advisors. Simeon, good to have you on. A lot of people are, no doubt, to Christina's point, watching. They're sitting at home. Maybe they're looking at their finances thinking, what do I do next year? So my question to you is this. What should they do next year?
3: Well, you have to hate stocks less than you have, than you hate bonds in this environment. And that's not the most ringing endorsement. But, you know, the math is simple. Rates are really low. Even with this, and I'll say the word Santa Claus rally, we're trading at about 22 times 2021 earnings. That's very consistent historically with a 2% 10-year, and we're not even at 1.5%. So stocks are fairly valued. I mean, if you look back at earnings season, Q3, earnings were up 40% year over year, and that wasn't even such a bad comp. Going back to 2019, it's almost a 35% increase. Mm. So you know we're in a decent place for equities. They're not defenseless. They can grow earnings and dividends. But those fixed coupons, they're totally exposed. This is not a regular tightening that we're about to experience from the Fed. It's going to start with tapering, and that should allow some level of normalization. Normalization means rise in those longer term interest rates, putting much more of a damper on bonds and perhaps not that much of a headwind for stocks.
2: There's a very important point that you are making, Simeon. We'd expect nothing less, by the way, and that for the newbies out there, there are two T's. And sometimes you hear about the taper, and sometimes you hear about the tightening. They are very, very different things, the tapering, the reduction of bond buying, the tightening actually raising interest rates, very different. Here's the question. We know we're going to get the taper. It's happening. We are likely to get a tightening, at least based on what they've said and everybody's projections. 1994, the Dow, it was 250 basis points, 2.5% of tightening, and the Dow surged in 1995. If we get higher rates, Simeon, can the overall market do what it did 20-some years ago, and still move up? It's all about earnings
3: growth. And I think what some folks get wrong is they try to completely equate the equity markets to the, to the bond market and look for shorter duration stuff, meaning the stuff where the earnings and the dividends are really front loaded. But that's not that much of a defense historically. The wrong place to look in the equities are places where, you know, you have very high dividend yields and not that much growth because it's growth that allows the equity market to persevere in the face of some rising rates. So I think as long as you're looking to where the growth is mm. and not trying to sort of engineer a short duration equity equivalent, you have a really good place to be in the equity markets, even in the face of... Yeah. Of rising short-term rates driven by the Fed.
2: Okay, so there's our macro convo. Let's help our viewers and listeners, Simeon, make a little money with some individual names next year. A lot of people out there, we talk about infrastructure, home renovations. They're going to be not only buying a new couch, but maybe things like new home infrastructure, water heaters, et cetera. A name like A.O. Smith, one you like. Sure. You know, we're big
3: fans of dividend growth at uh, at ProShares. Folks know the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats and NOBL the ETF. AO Smith exemplifies what it means to be a company that consistently grows its dividend. It's grown it for 28 straight years, 17% compounded growth in the last 5. That's your protection from inflation. Now, you missed a little bit. They did have a pop on their last earnings release. But that has not erased over five years of underperformance in the face of of the large cap tech run. If you want a valuation point, you're looking at the same EV, EV, excuse me, enterprise value to EBITDA multiple as the S&P 500, but three to four times the return on assets. So that makes sense.
2: And another name, a very smart guy named Thomas Tull, who's a multi-billionaire part owner of the Steelers. He backed a company called FIGS trying to change the game. In medical gowns and PPE and hospital equipment. Stock's been rough, down 30%, but you say buy on the weakness.
3: So there's a backstory here, which is, of course, the online retail backstory. If you look at the weak retail sales number from last month that people were nervous about, it was still a very strong number for online retail. And in online retail, just like brick and mortar two generations ago, there will be niche players who thrive alongside Amazon. You already have several. You have Etsy, you have Chewy and others. Figs is likely to be another. For those who don't know who they are, they make medical scrubs. 85% yep. of individuals buy their own scrubs. This is a category killer. It's it's underperformance since its IPO was kind of punctuated by the CFO um, who retired just a couple of weeks ago, uh, but a real opportunity to be invested in a category killer, yep. particularly after
2: a period where the brick-and-mortar retail rebound probably went a little too far. A.O. Smith and Figs, two new names on the smaller cap side. Simeon Hyman, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a happy New Year, buddy. Talk to you on Thank the other you. side. Take care. All right, and for more ideas on where to put your money, be sure to catch our CNBC special, Your Money, 2022. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, for all of Wall Street's top picks heading into next year. You literally cannot afford to miss that. All right, now to a news alert in the bond market. Two-year notes, they are up for auction, one of the final, maybe the final of the year. Rick Santelli's at the CME. Rick, Rick, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that stuff. And is it going to be a Happy New Year for the bond auction?
4: Well, you know what? It's a very good two-year note auction compared to the last six years. This particular auction, 56 billion two-year notes The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.769. So a whisker under 0.77%. But it tailed the one issued market was trading point seven six the distance between where it was trading and how far back they have to push the bids and offers to fill the entire order. That's called a tail when it moves in the wrong direction. And this tailed almost a full basis point. Why am I bringing all this up? Because the last six years, the two year note is notorious for leaving big tails, much bigger than this one basis point tail, actually. But I still gave it a C. Took off for the tailing. There was another big bright spot though, and I'll get to that in a minute. 2.55 is the 10, uh, is the bid to cover higher than the 10 auction average. 61.4 indirects. This is foreign participation. That 61.4 is the highest percentage of indirect bidders going back to June of 09. There's your highlight there. If it wasn't for the tailing, it probably would have had a better score. Tomorrow we'll have fives followed by sevens to complete all the supply, and none of it goes particularly well in December. So, of course, we'll keep everybody apprised, Brian. Uh, Think about it this way. The two-year note closed last year at 0.12, which means it's up almost 60 basis points for the year thus far, which makes sense because the market's looking ahead to what the Fed may do with rates Mm. in 2022.
2: But, Rick, here's the thing. If we did this last year at this time, and by the way, we we probably did, but it felt like five years ago, almost anybody of the smart money set that we would have asked, where is the 10-year note going to end the year? They probably would have said 2%, above 2%, around 2%. We are under 1.5%. What did everybody get wrong? Where did all the experts, with the exception of a couple guys like Scott Minard and Sri Kumar, where did they blow it?
4: Well, I'm not sure that anybody blew it. I think a better way to look at it is, is that logic doesn't prevail when you have central banks putting their imprint on the scale of where interest rates globally need to be. Now, this isn't a debate as to whether they did the right thing, the wrong thing, or their presence to try to combat the effects of the global economy on COVID should have been done or should not have been done. It's just a fact that many thought the yields would be higher because logic dictates they should be higher. But the risk-reward parameters get distorted when central banks, of course, keep printing and quantitative easy means. They issue debt, they buy it back, they put it in the corral. And oh, what's the corral? The reverse repo market. Basically, at $1.6 trillion it is is in a parking lot waiting for some future use. And when that future use becomes more obvious to the rest of us, That's when they're going to be right, Brian, and rates will go up.
2: But that that win is the real question, though, because like your point, they're just sitting at like lost bags at Newark Airport right now, Rick, waiting for somebody to find a use. Rick, best to you, my friend. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. We have got a long way to go here on The Exchange. On deck. Is 2022 going to be the year oil booms or collapses? As EV sales take over, Dan Pickering is here. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat maps looking pretty solid. you got Microsoft and Cisco leading the way. Boeing, the biggest laggard, even as everybody is flying or trying to fly these days. We're hoping you're having a great day wherever you may be. And we are back on CNBC right after this.
0: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: All right,
2: welcome back to the exchange. And don't look now, but oil prices are back on the move higher. Despite concerns about demand and the coming release of oil from the emergency reserves, crude oil prices are now 10 bucks higher than just 3 weeks ago, which means gasoline prices are going to move higher as well. Maybe not the news the White House wants to hear. Oil back above 75 a barrel. And your next guest says oil prices are likely to move higher in the next year. Joining us now is Dan Pickering. Chief Investment Officer at Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, welcome. Like, here's, I think, where people get the oil story wrong. There is a big difference between demand going down, which is what a lot of people think, and demand growth slowing, which is where the projections are. That means demand is still growing, just at a slower pace. Is that where you think some of the oil bears are getting it wrong?
7: I think the bears are a little worried about longer term issues like <laughs> energy transition um, they're worried about the economy they're worried about you know the build back better not passing what they're what they're missing is that we've got this pent up demand and um, energy transitions a long way away so the demand side looks like it's improving and the supply sides balanced. Brian so I think we've seen oil hold at 65 a couple of times now and so I think we've got a good floor question is, what's the
2: ceiling going to be? Yeah. And I think also what the bears miss is that it's a little bit myopic. They forget there's a whole world out there, Dan, that just wants a little taste of what we've had in America the last 30 or 40 years, which is clean, you know, re- renewable, not renewable, but but reliable and fairly inexpensive hydrocarbons. We can all transition here in America to EVs if we can afford it. People in, say, emerging markets like India, Nigeria, parts of China, they can't. And it's a big world out there. The global demand side is, is, a, is, I think, the side that people tend to miss the most.
7: Without a doubt. And, and what you're seeing with the situation in Europe uh, is that a quick move to renewables makes things less reliable, more volatile, and ultimately, for them right now, more expensive. And uh, the developing world can't handle more expensive. They want cheap and available. And so uh, we think that the, the outlook on the demand side, continues to look uh, more robust than consensus for into the next five to 10 years. And this energy transition will take decades, you know, not quarters, or years. And so, you know, in the meantime, we need fossil fuels and we're going to use them.
2: Do you think that we're going to see increased production in the United States? I know the Permian has held up pretty well. The rest of the country, more higher costs, they have not. The big majors, they're sitting on their cash. They're giving it back to investors, higher dividends, buybacks, etc. Will U.S. production increase next year?
7: U.S. production up, but not much. And remember, our peak was 13 million barrels a day. We're down around 11. I definitely take the under on getting back to 13 million barrels a day anytime soon. The the U.S. companies, for the most part, giving – Cash back to shareholders, like you mentioned, rather than drilling. And so I think we'll see production up, but not dramatically, certainly not enough to spoil the, the party in 22. For real
2: and, you know, OPEC, which we talk about all the time, and I still do miss the in-person meetings, but what they have done under the leadership of Bar- Secretary Barkindo and His Royal Highness Abdulaziz Ben Salman, they've kind of turned the OPEC into the, into the Fed. And instead of having just a periodic couple of meetings a year, it's now kind of a monthly thing mostly they'll have a press conference. They've kind of Federal reserved up OPEC. There's been no indication that they are going to waver from adding 400,000 new barrels a day, which, by the way, they probably don't even have the capacity to do that across their intri- entire contract. Do you think OPEC is going to hold the line steady next year as well, Dan?
7: I think OPEC's going to do a good job of managing the market. They've done a good job for the past year. I think that Ah, uh, they're walking the tightrope of adding supply and having a good price versus price being too high and and hurting their consumers. You saw the U.S. government and a number of others push back against high gasoline prices, and so I think OPEC manages the market well in 22. They'll bring more oil back. They won't oversupply the market. They're ready in case they need to to pull supply back and so um, or reduce supply. So I think that. They are uh, they are the Fed and and they're doing a pretty dang good job right now.
2: They are the Federal Reserve of oil. I know there's been a lot of projections, Dan, about 100 buck oil. Hard to see though, because once you get to that level, then you start to get geopolitical problems. You get even the even the even the, the the greediest producers start to throw more stuff on the market. 80, 85 seems like kind of a sweet spot, does it not?
7: That's that's our number. We saw the pain point. In the consuming nations, right around 85 a few months ago, a hundred dollar oil hurts demand uh, on the margin, and uh, you know I don't think OPEC wants to encourage alternatives generally. And so, 65, 85 feels like the right right range. 65 protection on the downside, 85 OPEC probably brings more oil back to the market. So for 22, that's kind of how I see it. 65, 85, a hundred would be a would be a a wild card scenario.
2: Yeah, and and to your point, probably a demand killer if it stayed there, if it stayed there for more than a brief period of time. Dan Pickering, thank you very much, Dan. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. We'll see you on the other side, 2022. Take care. All right, up next, we are going to go from Texas tea to the top tech and lay out what surprise names rocked the year. Plus, no loyalty here. Why Whole Foods customers are bailing because of 10 bucks. That's on rapid fire. And it was a Merry Christmas at the mall. You won't believe retail sales just did, but you might believe we're going to tell you next.
5: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This podcast is
8: supported by FedEx.
5: Dear small and medium
8: businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: All right, everybody, welcome or welcome back to the exchange. The markets right now—they are having a little post-Christmas Santa Claus rally. We're seeing the S&P 500 up more than one percent, and that, my friends, means it is yet another record high. If we close at a record high, if you're counting at home, it'll be the 69th record closing high for the S&P 500 this year. Only one, two, three, four, eight off the all-time record. All right, let's get a check on some of the sectors. You got healthcare. You got tech. You got real estate all on pace for record closes as well. In fact, technology is up 1.75%. It was hot all year. It's hot again. Now, it's not just them. There's other ones that are out there as well. We like to eat. Domino's, McDonald's, Yum! Brands, they're all hitting all-time highs today as well. In fact, Domino's, the biggest outperformer of this group this year, it is up 44%. On the flip side of that, casino stocks, Snake Eyes, are among the biggest laggards in the S&P. Some of the few stocks in the red today, they're falling on concerns over, you guessed it, travel, the Omicron variant, potential China lockdowns. You got Penn National, Wynn Resorts, and Las Vegas Sands. They are all lower today, all down between 20 and 40% this year and off one5 to 2% each today. And it's also been a December to forget. For many of the secondhand sellers and direct-to-consumer names, with every name here set to post steep declines this month, like Thread Stitch Fix, and Rent the One Rate. Right. They're a little bit higher today, while The Real Real and Poshmark are in the red. Still, it's been a ter- pretty tough run for this group. All right, now to Christina Parts and Avalos for a CNBC News update. Christina.
1: Thank you, Brian. Here is what is happening at this hour. President Biden says he's open to shortening quarantine times for people who test positive for COVID. Biden is also pledging full support of the federal government for states facing surges in new COVID cases. $100 incentives to get booster shots are getting people to roll up their sleeves. That's according to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. He says 180,000 people have taken advantage of the program since last week. Meanwhile, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says elective surgeries are being suspended at hospitals with limited capacity due to rising numbers of COVID patients. On the news, COVID testing lines remain long in many parts of the country. See what health officials are doing to meet demand tonight at 7 Eastern. And Russia says it will hold security talks with the United States next month. This amid increasing tensions in Ukraine. Foreign Minister Lavrov says the talks will begin right after Russia's New Year holidays that end on January 10th. Ryan, back over to you. All right,
2: Christina, thank you very much. Well, Spidey's record-breaking web looking a little bit less than smooth sailing for the cruise lines the tech names to buy next year. It's all ahead in today's Rapid Fire, and that is next. All right, welcome back. It is time now for Rapid Fire, so let's do it and talk top tech. Maybe more woes for the cruise lines. Spider-Man doing something maybe nobody thought was possible again. And a little trouble at Whole Foods here now to break it all down is Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors founder and financial advisor, along with CNBC's own Michael Santoli and Sima Modi, no doubt, in her 52nd cup of coffee today. Let's go. Topic number one, 2021's tech winners. It has been a volatile year for many tech stocks, with the threat of rising rates looming large over the past couple of months, beating up some of the once beloved software and Internet names, but fintech, cloud computing, cybersecurity, and especially semiconductors all saw some big winners this year with upstart Synaptics, Asana, Fortinet, and NVIDIA, the biggest gainers of the year. So Delano, we'll start with you. Any of these names stand out as a top performer next year?
0: Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. I think a lot of these names can have the potential to perform well next year. But if I'm thinking about the headwinds that you mentioned with rising rates, I want to stick with uh, the businesses that have those high-margin businesses that are spitting out cash flow. I like NVIDIA here. Obviously, we know that the tech the semiconductor demand is still going to be in place in 2022, um, even with congestion or any supply constraints. But that demand is still going to be there. Uh, If you're looking at their their data center, you're looking at the gaming chips unit, that's also a strong unit. Uh, I think one area you can look at is obviously it's very, very uh pricey as far as price earnings. Um so but you want to look at it from the standpoint of some of the potential and the smaller bets they're making. We're talking about the metaverse licensing potential over on that side. So I like Nvidia there, Brian.
2: Okay, Michael Santoli looking at what you look at, talking to the people you talk to as well. Is anybody still talking up big tech next year?
6: I don't think it's the consensus for a leadership group, Brian, which maybe is a net positive. Uh, one thing I would you know, remind people, I was looking at this the other day, the semiconductor index has approximately doubled the performance of the S&P 500 on a one, three, five and 10 year basis. I mean, it's almost like the danger was overthinking it, that the world was becoming more siliconized. The other point being, there's a lot of attrition in tech. So the indexes have done well, the average S&P tech stock has done well, but Asana, Upstart, they're down 40, 50% from their highs. The cloud computing ETF is actually down on the year. So I think you've, you've actually had a little bit of uncertainty run through some of the overheated areas of the tech market. I'm not sure how that sets up for 2022
2: all right well a lot of investors hoping that tech continues to run all right topic number two is the cruise lines at least today taking another hit you got norwegian royal caribbean carnival all lower today cases scuttling at least the end potentially of some vacays yet again at least four ships have been turned away from ports of call or prohibited from letting passengers off due to you guessed it more cases on board despite this cruise stocks doing okay recently all the big three up double digits this month. And I know some people, my family, SEMA, that booked a cruise for April, although they didn't pay a lot ah. for it. They didn't pay a lot for it. And apparently it's like 50% capacity. So asking for a <clears throat> friend, how is cruise line demand looking right now? You talk to all the CEOs.
9: Well, we just heard from carnival last week brian and the expectation is that second half bookings and going into 2023 demand is very strong but we still need more clarity on what the situation is right now ceo arnold donald telling cnbc that they're only seeing a small spike in cancellations does that change if we start to see more variants this has not been an easy pandemic or easy pandemic for the cruise lines to navigate and these stocks really move on COVID headlines in fact Here's a question to you, Brian. Name Uh any other sector that is more reactive to COVID news than the cruise lines. Last week, there was more encouraging headlines around the Pfizer and Merck drugs getting approval. That sent these stocks up. Today, the sentiment has sort of changed and you see where cruise stocks are trading today. So it's interesting to see sort of this daily price action. Longer term success really hinges on next year and these cruise lines returning to profitability. We're eyeing uh, sort of the second half of next year for those targets.
2: And I can't answer your question, Seema. I don't know of another group that's as volatile, Mike Santoli, and that kind of goes to the the trade. If I was an algorithmic trader running a programmable hedge fund or whatever, you just put an algo in, right? Every time you get a sniff the headline, You start to sell the the cruise lines, the hotels, the airlines. You buy certain other stocks. It's become like a dumb pattern at this point.
6: Right. Uh, And it kind of works till it doesn't. I mean, there's absolutely very much a headline sensitivity to that group. And it really has been mostly a proxy for you know the outlook for reopening type activities of the next six or eight weeks. I think longer term, it's a tougher road. Uh, If you're looking at the cruise lines, obviously, we all know they had to raise a tremendous amount of capital, both equity and debt. If you look at coming out of previous crises or crashes like the tech tech bubble crash or like the global financial crisis, that group at the epicenter had to these huge bounces off the lows, but really wallowed for years thereafter, whether it's home builders and banks after 08 or uh, internet after 2000.
2: Yeah, I just wonder Delano, listen, I mean, is this investing right now or is this gambling with some of these cruise lines? Because you really don't know what's going to happen.
0: You really don't. I think it would be more, as I mentioned by the panel, trading. So I mean, making trades, quick trades, based on what you're seeing in these headlines. And I think that presents a difficult road for an investor who's looking outward um, a little bit further. Um, it's because you mentioned, you know, I think this is one of the areas where the addressable market could be potentially shrinking uh, as we have you know, different variants popping up um, that we're fighting and battling with. So I think you know, from my standpoint, we've stayed out of these names. It's not something we'd want to invest in for long term.
2: Yeah, maybe a little bit of a trade there if you got the guts for it. But otherwise, you got to hold on to your hats. All right. Next up, holy Dr. Octopus, Spider-Man, No Way Home, breaking through the $1 billion mark in ticket sales over the weekend. Needless to say, it's the only movie to hit that milestone this year, probably for many reasons you can figure out. But maybe old Peter Parker is just a special one-off. Can other movies do the same going forward? Or... Do we think, Simo Modi, people are still a little bit spooked by sitting in the theater or they've just done their whole home up enough that they don't need to go to the movies?
9: That's what I thought, Brian, but clearly the results from Superman suggest that people, if the content is good, they will go out and they will buy a ticket and see this movie in the theater. I think this is a shot of optimism for theater owners and a little bit of, a little bit of humble pie for the streaming platforms that over the last year have been saying that theaters are dead. Um, so now it really comes down to the content and the new releases into next year.
2: Yeah, Michael Santolia, I mean, listen, of course, you might have heard about this company called AMC. They're like a movie theater stock, and there's some people on the Internet that like to trade them back and forth. Of course, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but, I mean, it goes to the whole Reddit trade as well. Seema asked me about what the more volatile – maybe I should have said movie theaters and cruise lines, you kind of lump them together.
6: Yes, uh, there's no doubt about that. Although I would really look toward things like Cinemark, which you're just flashing up there, as a real proxy for what people think about the box office and the, the staying power of the, uh, the return to movies. Uh, as, because AMC became a phenomenon of its own. It traded at many multiples of its pre-pandemic market value uh, when you know pre-pandemic peak earnings were you know probably never going to be seen again. So I think you have to set that aside as a special case and maybe set Spider-Man aside as a somewhat special case in terms of the circumstances, it was an inherently social kind of fan base. They wanted to be there for the beginning. A lot of pent-up demand for this particular set of characters. Sony doesn't really have a, a big streaming platform, so they weren't going to put it uh, out there on the day of the uh, box office release either.
2: All right, let's move on now to topic number four. And apparently high grocery costs are okay, but high delivery costs are not. Whole Foods reportedly seeing a big drop in delivery orders after instituting about a $10 delivery fee two months ago. The Amazon-owned grocer previously offering free delivery to Prime members. Now, Whole Foods spokesman said delivery remains a, quote, thriving part of their business. With increased competition from the likes of Instacart and others, will that be the case for much longer? Delano, what do you think? Does Whole Foods have a customer loyalty problem?
0: That would be interesting to see. I think, you know, the sensitivity of the sticker shock that, that consumers saw when that price came in probably played a little bit into them losing some of those um, deliveries. But I think in the long term, obviously, I think convenience is what consumers a lot of times pay for. And that's a big thing that we've seen where we've saw the big uh, kind of thriving um, delivery apps. And I think that's one thing that they'll get back. So, you know, as far as, you know, the Amazon, the holding company, this is not something that's you know, of, of any scare for them. So I think it's something that's going to be absorbed and consumers will stick to kind by that convenience factor brian
2: yeah see, modi i mean you live in new york city it's all about delivery it's all about convenience are you gonna balk at ten dollars
9: yeah, I will, Brian, and here's why. There is a new generation of ultra-fast delivery startups. We're talking 15 to 30 minutes, whatever you want, a fee that is very low. Gorilla, Gopuff was just raised a billion dollars, from SoftBank, these new companies are the real competitive threat. It's not just Instacart. So uh, I, clearly, this is a, a field, a, a market that is becoming more crowded, and now there are these new players that are giving Whole Foods, and therefore Amazon, a run for their money.
2: Yeah, why not let the venture capital and the private equity firms fund it? They'll lose money on every trade, but we will all benefit as the food is delivered to our door. Delano, Mike, Seema, thank you all very much. All right, coming up, have you tried to find an at-home COVID test recently? Yeah, good luck. Demand is soaring, supplies are down. We'll talk about it up next and whether or not the rapid tests actually work well enough for you to care. But first, this asset climbing again today on the heels of a strong week. What is the mystery chart? We'll let you know, and we're going to head to break with a lot of markets in the Christmas green. The S&P at a new high, its 69th record high of the year. NASDAQ up nearly 200 points. Santa Claus, he's not done yet. Full effect in stocks, and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin coming off a strong week. Let's get right now to Christina P for a market flash on what the cryptos are doing today. Christina?
1: I don't want to jinx it because anything is possible, but it might be tough for Bitcoin to hit that promised $100,000 mark by year end, but it is definitely charging higher. And what a year of all-time highs and record-breaking drops in 2021. Year-to-date, the cryptocurrency is well above 75% higher on pace for its third straight positive year after gaining over 306% last year. And you can see just to the two-year mark, 616%. But that's nothing compared to Ether, the second largest digital coin, up almost 450% or above 450% after gaining almost 480% just last year alone. And crypto link stocks also moving higher, like American Bitcoin miner Marathon Digital. We're seeing that trending higher. We also have, uh, and that's up 22% just in the past five days, and you have similar pat- patterns for Riot, blockchain, MicroStrategy, Coinbase. You can see across the board a sea of green. And some of that movement could be due to the upcoming crypto bill. Wyoming Republican Senator Cynthia Loomis plans to introduce a crypto bill that would cover everything from how digital assets are taxed to regulating stable coins and creating a new regulatory body. She's even tweeted. She's seeking bipartisan co-sponsors out there. Such a bill, though, as you know, could provide some some clear guidelines on how to navigate and regulate the crypto world. Brian, back over to you.
2: All right, Christina, thank you very much. All right, up next, demand for at-home COVID testing is booming. A black market is popping up. But we just had a big study out of Switzerland on testing. And here's a question as we head to break. Do the rapid tests work well enough on Omicron for you to care? Dr. Michael Mean is the leading voice on this in America. And he is here Next. all right welcome back to the exchange as covid cases pop across most of america demand for at-home covid tests is off the charts and they are flying off the shelves but here's the thing a first of its kind study last week from switzerland shows that most rapid tests are less effective at properly identifying omicron but what do we make of this joining us now is dr michael mina he is chief science officer at emed they're a telehealth company that seeks out Abix Binax now tests at home and then walks users through the testing process. Uh, Dr. Mina, uh, you've been sort of the leading voice on rapid testing. You've read op-eds. You and I have gone back and forth on Twitter a number of times. What do we make of that Swiss study? It shows that they're less effective at identifying Omicron, but does that make them useless? Yeah, so actually the study didn't actually uh,
10: show that. Uh, It's far too complicated for me to go into the actual science behind it but what it actually i think is demonstrating is that omicron is replicating much more efficiently but everything we see when you actually get it to sort of per virus how well does do these rapid tests detect omicron it's actually they're 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 across the board detecting omicron uh, just as well as they were detecting uh, delta in the previous uh, versions it's actually an issue with how the those studies are performed makes it appear that way.
2: Okay. Uh, well, well, (laughs) let's go back. Let's go back to that, because I got 10 scientists who would disagree with you on that. Mm -hmm. That I've talked to them, and we've gone back and forth on Twitter and it seems that there is a uh, you need to take more rapid tests to get what you might view. Take three in two days or something like this rather than one and relying on it. But you disagree with that take. So, so no, the the thing is, the tests
10: are identifying the virus just the same. What's happening is people are spreading the virus quicker before the virus migrates well into the nose. And so we're actually seeing around a day of infectivity before people start getting detected on uh, these tests, whether it's PCR or antigen. Unfortunately, it's one of the reasons Omicron is so transmissible, is that people are becoming infectious. Uh, very soon after they're first exposed, they're becoming symptomatic, infectious, okay. and then around a day later the tests are starting to pick you up, which is why some people are finding that actually a throat swab is better able to detect in that first day, which can also be on an ant- a rapid test, but because the virus starts in the throat and then works its way up into the nose.
2: Okay, that's interesting because we obviously know the demand, Dr. Mina. And driving here today, I passed two testing centers where there was lines of hundreds of people, hundreds of people. What has been our problem? And you have have highlighted this. The FDA, with the stroke of a freaking pen, could change the regulatory structure from a, quote, medical device, which makes them hard and expensive to produce, to basically like Germany, where I think there's 70 companies making tests, not just a couple. What in the world is, are the regulatory agencies doing? Why is it so hard to get a test? Yeah, the, the regulatory agency in the United
10: States still does not formally uh, 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 recognize that there is such thing as a test that is primarily used for public health. Every test has to go through a medical diagnostic evaluation and I've been suggesting that we change it, and we don't lower the bar, but we change the bar to something that is much more commensurate with a public health need. Testing to be fast, accessible. They need to identify you when you are infectious, and not three weeks later. Uh, these are. It doesn't mean rate lowering the bar for public health testing. It means creating a new pathway at the FDA. One one thing that could afford, for example, is. Uh, The ability for America and the FDA to look at Europe and say, what are the best tests that have been used millions and millions of times in Europe, and automatically grant those emergency use in the United States because our trusted countries have used them very successfully, overnight, that could increase capacity, hundreds of millions of tests in the United States, but we haven't actually pivoted uh, towards public health evaluations of these tests. At our regulatory agency is still two years in
2: it's just it's it's dr mina it's it's hard to believe i mean world war ii ford started making fighter planes instead of cars this is wartime that's what i don't get and we're acting like oh well we, we don't even have a full-time fda commissioner
10: you're absolutely right you know this is this has been a disaster i think from an fda perspective you know, and it was both administrations failed to recognize this need. And I said a lot, if we were being bombed or or if four four commercial airlines were going were getting shot down on our in our country every single day, we wouldn't wait for some regulatory agency to say we need to act. We would act swiftly. Even if we didn't have every cinch of information, yep. we would do what we needed to do. And we're just not living up to that here in this pandemic.
2: And, and tests are like three dollars equivalent, and widely available across most of Western Europe. Dr. Meen, appreciate that. And by the way, also appreciate you clearing up that study because there's been a lot of back and forth about what it really means. And I'm glad to know that these, because I've taken about four tests in the last four days, <laughs> that they're still yep. somewhat accurate, doctor. Thank you very much. Very accurate. Absolutely. Dr. Thanks. Michael Meen has been a leading voice on this. FDA, what are you doing? Seriously, what are you doing? Apparently nothing. All right, still ahead. Holiday sales surging across all channels, but with the threats of inflation and Omicron. You've heard of that hanging over consumers' heads. What's going to happen next year? The great Jan Rogers Niffin will be here on Retail. Next year. All right. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Omicron variant and rising prices not stopping you from opening up your wallets over the holidays. According to MasterCard Spending Pulse, U.S. retail sales jumped 8.5% between November 1st and Christmas Eve. That's 8.5% over the same time last year. Oh, and by the way, that is the strongest growth in 17 years. Jan Niffen joining us now. He's the CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide. And Jan, good to see you again. Merry Christmas. I mean, here's the thing. History is littered with the remains of people who have bet against the American shopper. Shopping is a national sport. It is a national holiday. And even Omicron and all these new variants and concerns weren't going to hold people down. What did you see for retail over the holidays?
11: I thought it was extraordinary that given cost pressures, supply chain problems, The inability to hire people, wage raises and inflation, Omicron, despite that, great numbers on the top line, great numbers on the gross margin line, maybe best holiday selling ever, but certainly in the last 17 years.
2: I got to imagine, to your point, the retailers are loving it because I didn't see a lot of discounts out there. A lot of people out there paying full price because, to your point, you may have been on the shelf, but there was probably just enough which means there's no excess inventory, which means they do not have to discount. There's a lot of pent up demand. Most consumers have a lot of money in their pockets. That's not my opinion. That's Goldman Sachs. It all kind of summed up to the perfect storm for many retailers.
11: And Brian, just wait till this week because gift card sales were up 43 percent. Wow. We don't count those until they show up. And they're going to start. They started showing up before Christmas. They will show up in volume this week and into next week. And we've got a lot of brand new product that was stuck on the boats that still be delivered to the stores. So the intersection of that, too, should make for some more great margins and really strong sales. I
2: was going to wear a Santa hat on this show, but I'm told it won't arrive in the ports until late March or something, Jan. So it'll have to be for next year. You know, you talked about labor issues. Two sides that coin. Right. We know it's tough to find people which means your labor costs are probably down. Instead of having, say, six people at a clothing store, maybe you have three or four. The lines are a little bit longer, but the labor costs are lower. Are the margins of these retailers just going to continue to rise? Well, they're setting
11: records. Can they continue to rise into 2022 is the question. But I think, you know, we've got a really good labor market right now from the point of view of people being able to spend. So the government supported spending last year. Workers are going to support spending this year. And if that's true, we could continue to see really strong sales of things as opposed to experiences right through the first half. Omicron has slowed down experiences, but it hasn't slowed down things at all. So I really think we're going to have a strong first half on the back of a consumer that's got a job and can get a job and can get a raise on the job and can find a new job if they want one.
2: Yeah, at a higher rate, have a little more money in their pockets as well. Jan, going back to your point about gift cards, up 43%. I mean, that is stunning. When do people traditionally spend their gift cards? They spend it like the first week of January or do they stretch it out as long as they can?
11: They spend them all in the first 60 days. They spend a huge proportion of them in the first 30 days. But yes, the biggest redemptions will come the next two
2: weeks. Jan Niffin, thank you very much, my friend. Take care. All right. And with that, that does it for The Exchange.
1: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.